0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen, and I haven't read most of the books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire.
1: I'm Joanna Robinson. I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire.
0: And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. You can find more episodes of this podcast at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. And you can also email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. What we do here on this podcast is uh, we discuss uh, every episode of Game of Thrones as it airs. We, we spoil everything, uh, but we don't spoil anything from future week's episodes, and that includes anything on the next time on Preview from HBO. It also includes anything from books that haven't made its, uh, its way onto the show yet. Uh, and you can also comment on this episode at facebook.com slash acastofkings. we uh, where you'll find a, a thriving community there. Um, but yeah, we've already told you how you can reach us, and a lot of people do reach us every week. Uh, let me read a few emails following up from last week's episode, Joanna. Uh, firstly, we got this one email uh, that I thought was really interesting from uh, Bill in Huntsville. Bill writes into acastofkings at gmail.com. Love the podcast. One comment about the Tower of Joy scene in Oathbreaker. You guys commented on how the fight between Ned and Sir Arthur Dane brought some of the mythology surrounding Ned Stark and his honor back down to earth a little. Ned mm-hmm. won the fight because Howland Reed stabbed Dane in the back. The story of the epic fight was apparently embellished as it was told and retold until Ned prevailed due to his own prowess. Flashback to Season 1, Episode 5, and Jaime Lannister has the opportunity to fight Ned Stark one-on-one. Jaime was pretty pumped about it because of Ned's reputation having defeated Dane, and Jaime did not get the opportunity to fully measure himself against Ned because one of Jaime's fellow guardsmen stabbed Ned in the leg with a spear. Jamie was probably nearly as disappointed at this turn of events as Ned was when Helen Reed stabbed Dane. Uh so that's an email from Bill in Huntsville. What do you think, Joanna? Uh interesting parallel in, in those two scenes?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean it's uh, not it's not a clean parallel because yeah. I don't think I don't think Ned was like Jones and to fight Arthur Dane. Right. Um but yeah, that whole I mean the look. I that's one of my favorite looks that Jamie Lannister has ever given. Is this is like frustrated, disappointment, and disgust at his his like man interceding in the fight. So, I think we um, I think we talked about it when we did our season one rewatch uh, last fall. It's a great. It's a great scene. It yeah. is
0: pretty fantastic. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I do think uh, the kind of mythologizing that goes on in the show. Does help to explain why Jamie would be so pissed at such a development in that fight. So, uh, yeah. all right, what else? We got a couple emails and tweets about this Doran Kickstarter. Uh, John, have you heard about this Dorn Kickstarter? I think you I... launched it actually, right?
1: <laughs> no, I can't take credit for this one. No. A
0: Kickstarter user named Fixing Doran Productions. Which is an incredibly subtle name for a production company, mm-hmm. uh, launched a Kickstarter entitled Fixing Dorn. And uh, the, <laughs> the tagline for this Kickstarter is We want $20 million to write, produce, and distribute a Dorn replacement for HBO's Game of Thrones. It's basically people who thought the Dorn subplot in the show was done so poorly that they want $20 million to uh, remake it. Um, so, Joanna, do you do you support such a Kickstarter? No,
1: I support like a a TARDIS, a time machine, to go back in time and fix the Dorn plot before it ever got off the ground. But I I don't support this Kickstarter at this moment. No.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you hated the Dorn plot line, then you should do what we do, which is just complain about it on a weekly basis. Yeah. You know? no, no need to go out there and try and like make another one. That's just insulting to the showrunners. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, why uh, make something when you can tear down something? Yeah, why make else something made? when you can
0: just tear stuff down? I don't understand yeah. it. I don't yeah. understand it. But in all seriousness, uh, these fixing dorm people are obviously very scrappy, and uh, their love of the books runs deep. And you know, there's something in there to be admired. It is quite a slap in the face to the creators of the show. Uh, on the other hand, what takes a lot of the sting out of that slap is that they are currently uh, more than $19 million away from reaching their goal and it doesn't look like they're going to make it anytime soon, unfortunately. So uh, nonetheless uh, – I did
1: read – someone wrote a really interesting – and I'm really apologetic that I can't find the link right now. But I, someone basically rewrote the Dorn plot, um, <laughs> n- not being slavishly devoted to the books but sort of trying to incorporate what they did – on the TV series, but edging it closer to what we got from the books. And I thought that was an interesting compromise. But it's still just fan fiction because, you know, the the die is cast. The characters are dead. <laughs> um, yes. No, but I mean while we're talking about Dorn, we should mention that George R. R. Martin himself released his own Dorn fan fiction. Or I should say – His own Dorn chapter from his own
0: book. Uh, It's just called fiction, I believe, Joanna.
1: (laughs) Ah, okay. Um, Which contains a whole bunch of characters who are dead uh, on the show or were never in the show to begin with. I, I, for one, found the timing a little suspicious because he also last year when – like (laughs) before the whole Sansa rape thing happened, released a Sansa chapter as if to be like, hey, in my books – this doesn't happen.
0: <laughs> so I Pretty think. Pretty passive aggressive chapter release, Joanna. I
1: mean, I, I just. He hasn't released one since he did that. And then he released this Dorn one hot on the heels of everyone being mad about the Dorn plot again. So I'm just saying if George R. R. Martin is doing that, I. A game recognized game.
0: You know? <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, this email comes in from Ash, uh, who writes into a cast of kings at gmail.com. And again, please try and let us know where you're from when you write in. Ash writes in, uh, This is probably a small issue, but I've been finding the naming of the episodes this season to be a bit weird. Episode 1, The Red Woman, and Episode 3, Oath, uh, Breaker,' right? Oathbreaker? Yeah. Was that Episode 3? we uh, We're only named so after a single character, Melisandra and Jon Snow, respectively. I find this odd because in the past, the show's title has served as a reference to multiple things. They didn't even have Brienne and her sword Oathkeeper in this week's episode. Uh, episode 2, Home, has the issue pointed out by Joanna um, a week back of characters just straight up saying Home. What's really weird is I'm pretty sure like three characters said it again in this episode with weird emphasis. Uh, Is this just a coincidence or a result of sequencing not being fully down during writing stages? Maybe I'm being overly observant. Nah, that can't be it. Anyway, I think the subtlety with the titles is also beginning to reflect in the show as a whole. Uh, One jarring scene in particular was when Tyrion and Varys see the boats burning in episode one, to which my brother who doesn't read books or do extra quote-unquote work like listening to podcasts immediately said, don't Greyjoys have lots of boats? Now, I'm no show defender and wouldn't argue that Game of Thrones was ever the most sophisticated program ever, but lately it seems to be forsaking nuance to quote-unquote get there. Hashtag shaggy dog Lives, hashtag you know it too. Yeah. <laughs> that email comes from, uh, from Ash. The question is, are the episode titles this season a bit lacking in the subtlety? What do you think, John Robinson?
1: I will, say, I, I will say that I've always been very impressed with certain episode titles being able to uh, – I think my favorite one is The Children, which I think applies yeah. to every single plot line somehow in that episode. Uh, yeah, and so I think this week's episode – You know, this week's episode is The Book of the Stranger, which Marjorie quotes from when she's talking to the High Sparrow. Uh, the Stranger is one of the gods in the religion of the seven who stands in for death. So you could say The Book of the Dead, but – like maybe that would relate to Arya, but Arya wasn't even in this episode, so the Book of the Stranger is a is a very weird one. Some of the ones that are coming up, I know which characters maybe they can be pinned to, but you're right that they aren't doing as much of a spread as, as they used to. With with Oathbreaker though, I mean first of all you're gonna get nitpickers saying John didn't technically break his oath, but also wouldn't we call Ollie an Oathbreaker? <laughs> I mean, aren't the mutineers Oathbreakers in that scene as well? So I don't know. Not I to. Have, like, I have, I have no
0: comment on what you just said, <laughs> uh, and, and I'm going to pretend. Uh, you know, I'm going to pretend you didn't say it in order to maintain our relationship, Joanna. So okay. Uh, that being said, I, I think the titles have always been a bit hit or miss. You know, I think like last season's titles. I'm looking over them, like season five. You know, uh, some of the titles are really subtle and interesting, and some of them are not. Season 5, Episode 8, Hard Home. You know, that, that's a um, pretty straightforward title, right? Uh, yeah, then, but the <laughs>
1: Battle of Hard Home is, is like a third of that episode.
0: No, I know. I'm, just, I'm simply saying that some okay. of the episode titles are like very straightforward in what they refer to, and some of them are a little bit more subtle. Unless you want to make a reference, unless you want to say like Hard Home was actually trying to say that, you know, home is hard in some way, like on a general sense. You know what I'm saying? I but, mean,
1: if we're talking about Winterfell, <laughs> then, then <laughs> maybe Caesar, it is. It was, yeah. Maybe
0: it is. So I, I think uh, I think the titles have always been a bit hit or miss. But I do feel like they were a bit more subtle earlier on, and then maybe like as time goes on, it's just harder to make interesting, poignant, profound titles. I think so. Uh, so this season, yeah, maybe the the titles have been a bit. More on the nose than in the past. Uh, and uh, the the episode titles for the rest of the, the season haven't been revealed yet, so maybe we'll we 'll take stock again uh, when the season is over so anyway, thanks for writing in. You can always email us at uh, a at gmail dot com You can also comment on this episode at facebook dot com slash a let 's move on into this. Yep. Do you want
1: to talk about this Shaggy Dog trutherism? Did we talk about this last week?
0: Uh, I think we might have referenced it, but I I, I did not even think it was a thing. Oh, oh, yeah, I think you 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 explained how there is this idea that maybe Shaggy Dog did not actually die. That that's like a fake head or something, or d- the head of a different Direwolf or something
1: like. Yeah, that. Yeah, I guess we can talk about this when we get to the OSHA stuff in this week's episode. So never mind. We'll get back to Shaggy Dog. We'll,
0: we shall return, I promise, <laughs> to the Shaggy Dog question. Right. So. Uh, all right, Jana, let's dive into this week's episode. Uh, this is season six, episode four that we're recapping this week, entitled Book of the Stranger. And it begins at Castle Black. Uh, John is having a conversation with Ed, uh, describing exactly what he's doing. Like, we were questioning is John leaving Castle Black? Uh, I think you actually thought it was plausible that he might just have been going to his room to kind of stew a little bit. Uh, But, uh, yeah, it turns out he is really intent on getting out of here because, in his opinion, he's already uh, broken his – like, he's broken his vow many times. But the vow no longer applies to him because, according to technicality, like, he's technically already dead and come back to life, right? So – he doesn't need to honor his vow anymore.
1: He found that loophole, man. Yeah.
0: Found that loophole, which is you need to die and get revived. Uh, I, I will say, when it comes to the revive talk, there is a shocking lack of discussion uh, regarding the prospect of potentially reviving Ollie. Uh, I don't know why that hasn't come into play yet, but I, I'm holding out hope that in a future episode, it will be mentioned that maybe they're saving Ollie's body and so on. Because uh, you don't actually see Ollie's body burning, right, in this episode, so.
1: I mean, maybe he's got his own little like knot of defenders who are interested in mutton and other things. Yeah, and are like we just don't, don't see it,
0: it all taking place off screen.
1: They're washing his like little asshole body and like <laughs> cutting his hair. Yeah, <laughs> <gonna> be great. <laughs> wow,
0: <laughs> brutal, Joanna. Sorry, he's um, a little.
1: He's a little asshole. Okay, <laughs> I will say that there's a behind the scenes featurette that they're doing. They're doing these great. Production videos every two episodes or so. Um, and so they just released the ones for episodes three and four. They're HBO official. You can see them on YouTube. They're about eight minutes. And so you can see, um, Frederick O'Connor like in the hanging scene and he's smiling and laughing. So if you want to remember the better times with this child actor, you can look at that video if you want to remember his purple, swollen face. Uh, you can rewatch the episode. Mm. So yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: it is. It is quite fascinating, just like how fashionable it is to just hate on this child character. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this against a child before in popular culture. Um, but maybe some listeners can remind me of what I'm. I'm forgetting. Uh,
1: I'm. I'm thinking. First thing I think of is um <laughs> what is S- it? sergeant Birdie's daughter on homeland oh hated yeah her. But,
0: okay you come on like the <laughs> hatred against her she's annoying but people didn't like want her to die horribly you know what i mean
1: i don't know Oh well, yeah
0: okay maybe, <laughs> I, maybe i'll walk that back a little bit um <laughs> by the way jesse carp in the chat room we're broadcasting live right now uh says that in the episode entitled oathbreaker there's tons of oathbreakers. Uh, Sam as father, Danny, uh who didn't go to the Dosh Kaleem when she's supposed to, uh, Small John breaking his oath to the Starks, and Ollie and company. So uh, that was actually, yeah, probably a pretty good good episode title. Oh, um, Jesse. Yeah, thanks, Jesse, for the uh, contribution. Always
1: with the facts. Yes, yeah.
0: Jesse is pretty good with uh, the Game of Thrones references. Anyway, so anyway, shortly after uh, John is having a lot of angst over what he should do next with Ed... Uh, we get a dramatic scene of the gates opening and uh, Brienne Sansa, and pod riding through and this is an awesome scene because I believe that shot is a direct mirror of the first shot of the entire series right uh, where the gates open and kind of you see the uh, Night's watch Rangers like go out before the wall. am I, am I right about that, or do did you, did you catch that reference or am I just making that up
1: i mean it 's a- they went out a different gate. It's I'd true. have to rewatch it. Maybe
0: it's true. I just felt like there was a, almost a direct parallel because, because just like the angle and the focal length and the fact that there was, I think, I think there was three of them as well.
1: There uh, were, yeah.
0: It just felt like a direct parallel to that scene. I don't know why they chose to do it that way. Maybe just that this was like a momentous, almost as momentous as the show beginning was uh, Santa arriving <laughs> at Castle Black. Yeah, yeah. but Okay. Uh, anyway, they ride in and Tormund is like incredibly taken with uh, Brienne. Like he's just kind of like in awe of this amazing creature. That Who wouldn't be? In, uh, agreed. And uh, for the first time pretty much, uh, with a couple of potential exceptions, uh, Sansa and Jon, two of the Stark children, embrace for the very first time. And man, Joanna, it got pretty dusty in the room when that happened. Did you yeah. cry? I,
1: it was, it was really emotional. Yeah, I, I have to say, it was really, really well done. I thought they sold it really well. And yeah, I mean, uh, there have been a lot of near misses, like uh, Bran and Jon at Craster's Keep, or Arya walking right up to the Erie where Sansa was inside, and then. Deciding to leave for some reason. Like there have been all these near misses with the Stark children. So to have two of them actually embrace was so great. And as um David Benioff, I think, said in the post episode interview, uh, Sophie Turner and Kit Harrington had never had a scene together. Like Sansa oh, really? and John. Even in
0: uh, season even one. Even in
1: season one. Yeah. Sansa and John never interacted. And they addressed this in the episode that, like, Sansa and John were probably the most estranged of the Stark children because Sansa was very much her mother's daughter and John right. was this bastard.
0: Um, and uh, uh, what's her name? Catelyn Stark's hatred of John was right. pretty clear in both the show and the books. Right. right. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. It. it um, it w- it was addressed and and yeah it w- it meant a lot and just to see how far the two of them have come especially Sansa since she was this bratty kid in season 1 it's really really great
0: bratty kid who like was super looking forward to marrying joffrey
1: and uh, she had great taste i have yeah. To
0: say. <laughs> yeah seriously uh the the moment was so powerful that uh it almost made me not think of what the timeline must be because doesn't it take Weeks, if not months, to travel from Winterfell to Castle Black?
1: I would not say months. No. <laughs> uh,
0: but quite a, quite a while. That being said, uh, I think there is like a plausible timeline whereby uh, all these events could be converging a- at once. Because I mean,
1: I honestly think you just have to let the travel time in Westeros go at this point, <laughs> given the way that Littlefinger gets around. It's just I am like... holding
0: on to it for dear life, <laughs> Joanna.
1: It's only going to cause you stress because <laughs> it makes no sense at all at all so yeah. it
0: is interesting that like it seems like Jon Snow's storyline is the only one that we're experiencing in real time this season uh and that everyone else kind of the editing is kind of smoothing over these transitions i find uh but i was looking
1: at a someone has a very complicated google doc that i saw on reddit yeah. that tracks every single event that has happened, and like the day, the date. Because if you start at the beginning with George R. R. Martin's text and count the days, you can try to make a timeline. If you want to be that meticulous about something, so they have every single event, and it's just it's hard. Because yeah, you're you're watching since sans- later in the episode, you're watching sans and John have lunch, and then they're like, okay, Roos is dead now. <laughs> For us, that happened a couple episodes ago, you know, as the messengers ride or as the ravens fly. It, yeah, it's a little or, – or like little fingers intel, how up to date is it, all of right, that. Right, right,
0: yeah. It's a
1: little complicated.
0: Uh, I, I, uh, I'm i really just kind of joshing the show a little bit. I think it's completely fine. I don't actually have a problem with it. But, uh, yeah, I think you are right. You just got to let it go at this point. You got to accept the teleporting Westeros uh, elements as they happen. Um, but, uh, yeah, really emotional scene between Sansa and Jon. And at least they talk about their childhood, how they never should have left, and how uh, Sansa is really sorry for how horrible she was to Jon. Because, really, uh, events like you know uh, brutal sexual assault and the political upheaval of the entire land that you're a part of and being forced to kill uh, friends and loved ones and watch them die before you – Really does put in perspective family squabbles, I think. Um, and so that definitely came to light in this episode when, you know, th- this, this interaction between them is very heartfelt. Uh, Sansa talks about wanting to go home, going back to Winterfell uh, to take it back. And John not so much because he's worried he's, he's killed too many people and doesn't want to do it anymore. Uh, so one question I had for you, Joanna, is do you feel like Sansa's wanting to return and like take revenge, was that believable to you? Just because I felt like, wow, she had just gone through this spectacular ordeal to avoid all that, to get out of there. Uh, it, it didn't strike me as like necessarily a slam dunk that she'd want to head back right into uh, the heart of the beast right uh, Like right then. What do you think, though?
1: Well, I didn't think she wanted to like strap a sword on her back and ride out that instance. I think she wanted... John to help her rally the forces that she would need. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I. I mean. I. I believe. I think it's believable that Santa really wants to go uh, have her revenge on Ramsey, who wouldn't. But uh, I don't think she's advocating doing it stupidly. I mean, she doesn't go into all of that, but that that's how I extrapolate it. That's what I. Yeah.
0: No. No. I don't think she's advocating doing it stupidly either. But I guess. Uh, if if I had just escaped, you know, this place that was where danger lurked around every corner, I probably would want to head back there uh, immediately or even in the near future. That being said, it was uh, her home for the longest time, and there's probably this profound sense of injustice that it's it's occupied by this uh, horrible psychopath right now. So um, can totally understand that as well. Uh, Davos and Melisandra have a conversation about Stannis. Uh, and Melisandra basically believes, you know, John now is the chosen one and, uh, she's gonna, you know, bet on this guy from now on.
1: I did like Davos kind of calling her out being like, uh, I thought Stannis was the chosen one. <laughs> What's up Melisandra? Uh, but yeah, I, I like that she has pinned her hopes so quickly on this, uh,
0: on this new hero. She's yeah. looking for anything, anything at all. Uh, and anyway, Brienne comes in. And they have a really awkward conversation uh, where Brienne you know, reminds them that she knew about Renly getting killed by the smoke baby and then tells them that she executed Stannis. We had someone write in about this, Joanna, and uh, this email comes in from Jenny, who writes into CastleKingsgmail.com Uh, A couple thoughts I wanted to share on episode 4, mostly about Brienne. For one, I thought the scene where she basically crowed to Davos and Melisandre about executing Stannis was pretty awful. Maybe Melisandre deserved to hear it like that, but Brienne remembers that Davos was loyal to Stannis the way she was to Renly. This was uncharacteristically cruel of Brienne, who would, in reality, I think, have some basic respect for Davos' service. Uh, I know a scene of this nature is to be expected, given that the abbreviation of Stannis' storyline has, in one way or another, brought these players together at Castle Black. And the audience is meant to celebrate Brienne winning for once, if you can call that whole sad affair a victory. But look at Davos' face! God bless Liam Cunningham. His craggy face has been doing work every episode. She made him so upset, and she didn't give a damn. Uh, Wow.
1: Okay. Okay. Here's, so I was watching that scene and I am I, always sympathetic to Davos. Um, but as soon as you get to – on Davos's side, you have to remember that he's the one who rode Melisandre into like sort of the outlet where she gave birth to smoke baby. Like he was her accomplice in the murder of King Renly and all of that was dirty deeds. Like R- Renly never used that kind of underhanded methods in his attempt. Like Stannis – use dirty magic and Davos helped these are facts i love davos but that that's a fact so i thought brienne was perfectly justified in and it wasn't even crowing it was just sort of like i remember what happened this is what i did and i did not forget and i think it was it was really needed because um A lot of people were wondering what would happen with all the personalities, like how Brienne would react. It would have been so silly for them to not address it. So I'm glad that they addressed it on the show. Um, And the other thing is my favorite actually part of that scene is that Davos is talking to Melisandre and he's like, what happened with Stannis? What happened with Shireen? And I'm like, why is this conversation happening now? I mean, he started it in the season finale last year, and I understand that some stuff has been going on, but it felt like very late for him to have this conversation to be like, what happened with Shireen? He still didn't get an answer about what happened with Shireen. In in theory, theory, that's a shoe that is yet to drop, but uh, yeah, it just felt late. It it feels like he should have pursued this line of questioning earlier. Agreed.
0: And you know, there was that moment, I think, in the season finale of last year where – he asks uh, Melisandre, like, what happened to, to Stannis, and she kind of shakes her head, indicating that, hey, it didn't go well for him. Right, And that, like, he kind of found out about the death last season, if I recall correctly, right?
1: Well, he knows that, yeah, he knows they're dead, he just doesn't know the particulars. He doesn't
0: know the particulars, and that's, that's what Brienne was able to bring to the table this episode. <laughs> you know, yeah. she was able yeah. to fill in a lot of those uh, vague elements of that story, uh, in a very necessary way. Uh, let's talk about just how this whole plot line plays out. Uh, I think there's just like one or two more scenes with regards to Jon, uh, and Sansa this episode. One of them is a pretty amazing scene that happens in the dining hall at Castle Black. Tormund's really tears into this piece of bread while, uh, Keeping his eyes on Brienne. Uh, there are a lot of torment Brienne shippers out there now, Joanna Robinson. Are you one of them?
1: I'm the captain of this ship. <laughs> Maybe that's giving myself too much importance. I am like the first mate of this ship. <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: He is clearly like very impressed with her. Uh, I mean, he has a type, right? His type. Strong woman, literally strong woman who can kill you uh, if they try, even mildly. So uh, I think that would be a pretty good pairing. I think uh, they'd both be happy in that situation. Um, but, uh, yeah, they...
1: Maybe. I don't know. Brienne has weird taste in men, right? She does. And Renly <laughs> and Jamie, I don't know. Um, but but I I think that they would make each other very happy. It's the most excited I've been for um, a potential pairing in a long time with Game of Thrones. That being said, right, if we all say that, that means one of them is going to die like, <laughs> next week or something like that. I don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm not actually predicting that. I'm just saying, like, you know, it's, it's folly to get our hopes up too high on the show, right? So
0: true enough. Uh, now, in the books, like, do you have any book knowledge about this relationship?
1: Oh, it's, it's, they've never met. In oh,
0: wow. So it, they could get together. Has anyone in Game of Thrones ever lived happily ever after? The only one that I can think of is uh, Edmure with that... Uh, Frey girl at that wedding and I don't even know if like he's still alive maybe they killed him shortly after that
1: no, he, like he was their prisoner yeah. um, <laughs> I, I would say Ma- Maester Eamon if you count like hanging out north of the wall and being blind living happily ever after
0: <laughs> that is the best outcome you could hope for on Game of Thrones
1: but he died of old age you know so like that's that's rare I was Game talking
0: about couples Joanna Robinson oh. couples, like-
1: Maester Eamon and his birds <laughs> Uh, happily ever after
0: that is so depressing (laughs) Uh, i'm holding out hope that Tom and marjorie can make it work (laughs) anyway so uh at castle black uh sansa is still trying to convince john that hey we gotta uh get this show on the road ramsey writes this very uh let's say crass i want to say crass joanna Uh, letter via raven to john and john uh, is not happy about it but is it enough to get him to go back into battle uh it seems so right like that seems to be what is happening is that john's gonna take a bunch of northern folk and go and storm winterfell at least uh, that's what the show is kind of gesturing towards do you have anything to say about this or do you have book knowledge that would prevent you from disclosing?
1: I have a lot to say. What's interesting is that this letter in the books comes before the mutiny at Castle Black, right? Uh, Ramsey sends it when he has um, this girl that he's pretending is one of the Stark girls, right? Gene, so instead of Jean Poole. Right. So instead of Rickon, he has Jean Poole. He sends this letter that has been called the pink letter or the bastard letter. Um, and what's interesting is that, you know, th- this letter arrives and readers for years since the book, since the Dance of Dragons came out, have not been sure whether or not Ramsey actually wrote the letter. There are some theories that it didn't actually come from Ramsey, but I think the show makes it pretty clear. I, I always believed it came from Ramsey. I still believe it came from Ramsey. Um, you know, something that it, that it says in the books, uh, is that, you know, I don't know, whatever your pretender king is dead talking about Stannis, but Stannis hadn't died like on screen in the books yet. So the fact that like his death was written in this letter, a lot of readers didn't want to believe it. So that's why they thought the letter was a fake. So, uh, anyway, that's, that's pretty confusing, but all that's to say is that this letter exists in the book. It's why John wants to leave Castle Black. And go to Winterfell to get who he thinks is his sister back. And that's why his brothers end up stabbing him is because he does want to break his oath in order to go. It's not. It doesn't have to do with the Wildlings. Well, the Wildlings didn't help. It doesn't have to do with the Wildlings necessarily. It has to do with John wanting to take the, the Night's Watch and go rescue his sister from Winterfell, which is a clear violation of his oath. And then they stab him for the watch because he's not he's, – he's deserting his post and yeah, so it's the timeline's a little a little flipped.
0: Interesting. Well, and I,
1: I think th- and I think that makes John a more interesting character to a certain degree. He's still plenty interesting in the show, but like, isn't that interesting?
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I think. You know? uh, firstly, I think we can all agree that the introduction of Ollie really helps to sell what the show is trying to do. <laughs> okay, to start with. Secondly, right, right. secondly, I think uh, that this that makes it really interesting now because I guess
1: so. No, he well. was an oathbreaker, right? Like,
0: right, 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 right. Secondly, I think the show leaves no doubt as to whether or not Ramsey is the author of that that letter, right? I mean, like, I don't think we're meant to doubt as a show watcher that Ramsey might have written it. Would you agree with that or? Do you think there's uh,
1: no? I would agree that that is, that is definitely the surface reading of mm. the show. Um, I think this season, more than any other season, uh, partially because we're off book, uh, there has been a lot of extraneous theorizing. And I, I am a fond of a crackpot theory, but I think this is an instance of looking for conspiracies where there are none. Like a letter arrives detailing what's happening at Winterfell, sealed with the Flayed Man seal. Like, it looks like a letter from Ramsay. It talks like a letter from Ramsay. Why wouldn't it be a letter from Ramsay? Like, that was Shaggy Dog's head. You know, like, these are the things. And now, you know, there are surprises. I'm not trying to shoot down every single surprise ever. But I think some people look for the show, um, you know, speaking just about the show, not about the book, look for it to be more complicated than it actually ends up being. And I'm guilty of that too, for sure. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Plus we've seen Ramsey just kill someone in this episode as we'll get to in a moment. So I don't know. I feel like a Ramsey kills someone B writes this letter. It's C it gets to Sansa. I could feel the, the linear chain of events, but, uh, uh, we'll see. Maybe, uh, we'll be proven wrong about who wrote that letter. But I think, I think the provenance is with Ramsey. Uh, Later on in this episode, let's move on. Uh, we see the return of Peter Baelish, uh, who arrives back in the Vale, I think from, I want to say, King's Landing, right?
1: Yeah, he took the, the slow boat from King's Landing yes. back to the Vale in, like, I think it was, like, episode eight or maybe nine, but it's been a while since we've seen him.
0: Right. Uh, and he is now the ruler of the Vale, and he rules it alone, especially because he murdered. Uh, Lady Erin last well, season, right?
1: Not really. Like, Robin is the ruler of the Vale, but Littlefinger has manipulated Robin to the gotcha. point where he's essentially... It's sort of like if Tommen were more compliant, then Cersei would be the ruler in King's Landing, right? Like, yes. she's got a malleable uh, little figurehead to put on the throne, and so that's what Robin is. Robin is technically the heir... And but Littlefinger, aka Uncle Peter, uh is calling the shots. So
0: And he brings Robin a Falcon, which uh you wrote in your weekly piece at Vanity Fair about Game of Thrones uh is kind of a callback to many other uh, instances of Falcons being at the Vale, correct?
1: I mean Falcon there's a Falcon on the on the House Crest, on the Aaron Crest. Uh but yeah, in season four Baelish brings uh, Robin like a crystal falcon that he immediately hurls out the moon door because he's a little psycho. Uh, yeah, so this time it's a, re- a real-life falcon. Yeah.
0: I really liked how they conveyed that Robin is not only kind of still psycho but still completely useless at anything including shooting arrows. Like uh, the way the shot is introduced, he's lining up a shot, and you're like, "Oh, maybe he's actually improved." But nope, uh, the arrow falls amongst many others on the on the ground. Yeah. Um, there is a scene where this guy Royce, right, is trying to jam up Peter Baelish, and is unsuccessful at doing so. What what is going on here, Joanna Robinson? What's the dynamic at play?
1: Um, you know, Royce has, ha, you know, as a Lord of the Vale, has ha, should have. Much more authority than Baelish does. And I, I didn't, um, think that Baelish quite earned how quickly he squirreled out of that. Cause they're at, um, Jan Royce's estate. Like he should have had the higher ground there. For Baelish to talk his way out in like three sentences, for Robin to say put Royce at the moon door is like crazy to me. Um, I, I know that, that, that I just got done calling him a little psycho, but, Uh, I don't know. It just—it felt like Baelish got there way too quickly in terms of really discounting how important these Lords of the Vale are. Um, But that's the show, not the book. So in the show, Baelish can talk his way out of anything in in three sentences and not only put Royce in his place, but also got Robin to agree that the Knights of the Vale uh, should go to Sansa's aid uh, at Castle Black.
0: I thought it was fine as a chilling look into the era of child kings and how arbitrary and capricious life must have been back then mm. <laughs> but uh yeah i can see also what you're saying that they could have done a little bit more to to set that up uh baelish does get his way pretty quickly but he decides uh that they should send knights of the veil vale to rescue Sansa. So what's a little bit unclear to me is like do they know where Sansa is or where she's going at this point? Like do they think she's in Winterfell or in Castle Black or like do they know that she's going to move back down to Winterfell? You know that's the sort of plan is. So Littlefinger
1: Littlefinger said she's escaped Ramsay from Winterfell. Uh Probably she's going to Castle Black because that's where her brother is. Like, that's what he says. Right. You can see the wheels turning in his head as he's saying it. He, and then he says, she won't necessarily be safe there because the Boltons are relentless. So we should go help her, is what right. he says to Robin. So
0: so maybe they'll meet up in the middle at Winterfell, presumably. Uh, uh,
1: maybe, or he's going to go directly to Castle Black. Go yeah. that way.
0: Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Uh, we'll see. Uh, what do you think Peter Baelish's game is here? Right? Is he just thriving on like uh, pitting these houses? Like, is it, <laughs> does he really have Santa's best interests at heart, Joanna? What do you think?
1: It, is it cheating to talk about an interview that um, the actor gave?
0: Mm, I think it is a little bit. Can we save it until later? Sure. In the season, okay. Let's save yeah. It. But you, so you're saying you know the answer to this question?
1: I know the answer that he gave Entertainment Weekly. Gotcha. Uh, whether or not that's true, and you know whether or not there's another. Little finger double cross in the future, I don't know, but I know the answer he gave, yeah.
0: All right, let's talk about what happens at Marine this week. Uh, there uh, is a bunch of scenes of political maneuvering between Tyrion and Mesende, Grey Worm, and uh, Varys. Uh, he basically w- is going to renegotiate the peace plan uh, with the Masters and Slaver's Bay. Uh, and Missende and Grey Worm are not super thrilled with this prospect Because they have both been slaves They know how horrible it is uh, And they don't want Tyrion to make any compromises whatsoever uh, But Tyrion not only compromises He you know, offers them a nice little uh, gift of these prostitutes in As if to kind of uh, mm. the ultimate indignity for these slaves to witness
1: The look on Missende's face when the prostitutes came in was pretty priceless
0: Yeah, it was pretty good uh, and yeah, uh, the the compromise is: hey, uh, you guys don't need to stop having slaves now. Maybe in seven years uh, you can stop, and so keep life the way it is. And in exchange, uh, stop helping sons of the Harpy. Uh, so I think I understand what the show's trying to do with Tyrion's uh, plot line here. Right? I mean, Tyrion is has always been. Pragmatic, if nothing else, and the idea is that sometimes we shouldn't let perfect be the enemy of good. We shouldn't let mm-hmm. a a uh, a perfect plan try to stop us from making a good plan. Uh, we should. We don't make peace with our friends. We need make peace with our enemies. Um, what do you think of Tyrion's plan here? Do you think it is like a really effective political move, or? Just like Tyrion does not know what's going to happen, and Grey Worm's right when he says like these people will destroy you and they'll use you and destroy you.
1: Um, a couple things. Um, the Weiss and Benioff said in the post-episode interview that their inspiration for this plotline for Tyrion was Abraham Lincoln, yes, um, and like the Hampton Roads conference and similar sort of. Peace that he tried to broker during the Civil War to end it, while still maybe having slavery continue in the South under some, you know, various uh, conditions. So that you know that that's that's a, that's the source material, and you wouldn't think that a comparison to Abraham Lincoln would be bad. But that being said, I I think the way the show is setting it up. Uh, there's no way miss Endi and Grey Worm are wrong in this situation, right? Because uh, Tyrion is basically like white, uh, free mansplaining slavery to them. <laughs> <laughs> there's, nice. There's no way he's gonna get away with like. There's no way he's right and they're wrong. Uh, you know, as much as as much as we've seen Tyrion be a statesman, um, I just think they're setting him up to fail big time in a Marine, which is constant theme of marine in the books is like these uh, <laughs> you know attempts to politicize the area fail uh because you can't uh, lay your culture your political culture over someone else's culture uh this way and 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 then that saddens me because uh I hate seeing Tyrion not be great at the thing we know he's great at. Like, it really, bo- this feels so uncharacteristic to me to see Tyrion so out of his depth and just not. I would prefer to see season two Tyrion of like Battle of Blackwater, like him knowing, him being the consummate statesman. Uh, so to see him fail here, um, I, I get, Kind of why, but but it's not enjoyable to me to see him set himself up for failure. So is my prediction. It's not a spoiler. It's just it's a not, prediction.
0: not based on any book knowledge other than other than the marine precedents. But right, uh, yeah, I think you're probably right. Uh, the concerned look uh, that Tyrion gives Grey Worm, the dire music, it's all kind of pointing to things being even more complicated than Tyrion thinks they are. Which, you know, he is able to grasp a significant level of complication. So
1: I will say, speaking of crackpot, my personal crackpot theory that I refuse to let go of is that there's more to the Sons of the Harpy thing than meets the eye because we only have Varys' word for it that the wise masters of, of Yunkai, et cetera, are uh, funding the Sons of the Harpy. Because he, uh, in theory, got that information from the widow with the asthmatic son, but we never saw her say it. She just, like, it cuts. And then later Varys is like, here's what I found out it's the wise masters of mm. you know these surrounding areas. And when Tyrion's talking to them, they're like, uh, we're not funding the Sons of the Harpy. Now, of course, they have every reason to lie. So, like possibly they're lying, but this is my crackpot theory is that there is is more to the Sons of the Harpy situation than MCI.
0: Do you think Varys is purposefully withholding it for his own purposes, or that uh, that he just doesn't know?
1: Uh, if the intel Varus gave is wrong, I would say there's a good reason for it. There would be a Veris, a good Varus reason for it.
0: Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, we're putting you down for that. Uh, but, you know, speaking of things that are more than meets the eye, John Robinson. Yes, Dave Chen. Our listeners.
1: Yeah. <laughs> because on
0: the one hand, you think they're just listeners, on the other hand, they're also amazing funders who help make this podcast possible. Uh, and every year we kind of put the hat out and go on Kickstarter and say, hey, do you want to support Cast of Kings? Uh, support this Kickstarter. And a lot of you do. And uh, in return, we want to thank a lot of you on the air by name, as best as we can pronounce them, uh, on this episode of Cast of Kings. So, Joanna, you want to take us through some names?
1: I would love to. It would be my pleasure. Um, let's see. Simon Jones. Peter Volbrecht. <laughs> Dan Feldman. Uh, Patrick Zeitzing uh, Jason Brown Amy Lewis from Victoria, Canada Giles Hutchings um, Nizar Babel Thomas Rave Peter Clicker um, Eric Aber, Right? Yeah, I think that's right, yeah Uh, Caroline Kim Beckert Brian T. Welsh Debbie Hewer Chris Lucas Luther Blissett Uh, Shan the Man, (laughs) Raymond Terry, Tommy Fitzgerald, Uh, Stead Like Instead. Oh, Stead. Sorry, Stead. (laughs) You know, like instead. Okay. Uh, Riley Pratt, James Duvall, Patrick Toomey, Emily Glickman, uh, David Breslin. (laughs) Um, And then lastly, uh, Boca Ancone from the Netherlands.
0: Thanks to all you guys. Thanks also to David Jacks, Weibel, Kirsten M, Kenya, Shane Bissett, Glenn Gilliard, Allison, Vic Dang, and Rad Baby Reyes, Nathan Welchert, Cameron Brigham, Tiffany and Nick Grayson, Nate Boten Brian Holland-Minkley, Vanessa Arleno-Overhog, Sir Christopher of House Fonseca, Jeannie Walker from Detroit, Michigan, Kevin Yavno, Paul, your biggest lossy fan, Bedford, Matthias, Alexander of the House Weiss, James Arn, James Stout, Tal, thanks for unblocking me, Rosenbloom, Joe Brickfangs, Shannon, Lucy from Des Moines, Amanda Rose, Paul Michael, Michael Baker, Mark of Yarraville, Victoria, Michael Lemons, Evan Krieger, Kelly Beam, and Dustin Anglin, we got through it, Jenna. I feel like every time we do these names, I'm like watching someone do a tightrope walk and kind of seeing if they will fail or not. And uh, I feel the same way when I read the names as well. So. <laughs>
1: I think someday there should be a video of me doing it because my eyeballs are scanning like crazy to be like, is there, is there something coming? Let me pre-pronounce it in my head so I don't it <laughs> up and
0: sound like an asshole. Wait, Joanna, you mean you don't practice the names like endlessly before the show begins? I think that's uh, – I don't know about that. Uh, but, uh, no, I, I, I do not practice names either. I, I kind of – it it gives a little bit of um, excitement, you know, to the name pronunciation. I think if we just save it live, you know what I'm saying? Like, who knows if it's if it's going to happen or not, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All
0: right. Anyway, <laughs> let's move on with the rest of the episode. Uh, so a couple more plot lines. Firstly, Dario Kind of a dick this week to Jorah, wouldn't you say?
1: Are you freaking kidding me, Dario Like, I can't be too mad at him because he saved Jorah in the end. But... Yeah, he needs to watch his mouth. Is what I have to say. Yeah. If I if I were Dora, I would have shoved my forearm into Dario's mouth just to shut him up. You he know, really
0: crossed the line. I mean, <laughs> the he, grayscale he, one. Yeah. The, oh, thanks, Joanna. Thanks for creating that <laughs> up. Um, yeah, he really crossed the line this week. Uh, it's one thing to just say like vaguely you're old. It's another thing to say like, hey, like you know, this woman you're in love with, I've had sex with her, and I don't think you can handle it. You'd have a heart attack and die. You know that's you know,
1: and he said like ride the dragon. Mm. I believe is how he put it. Yeah. Ugh, Dario. I uh. mean, it's it's actually kind of good because as I was watching him do this and I'm like, this is so gross and feels out of character for Dario, but we should remember that if you if if you think of him as the original actor Ed Screen who was cast to play Dario, like that Dario would say shit like this. I just feel like we've had a kindler, gentler Dario since right. he uh, became Michael Hisman. Uh, I pronounced that wrong, and grew a beard. Uh, but now, like he brought he brought out that old, like you know, nudie dagger from from the season where he was first introduced. And so, yeah, this is probably more like how Dario should be. I was just I was very outraged on behalf of Jora big time so
0: yeah i think you're right ed screen uh ed Skrian, or however whatever his name is pronounced i can't pronounce any of the dario names joanna Dar- <laughs> dario is more pronounceable than any of their actual real names uh but uh his uh uh, uh what do you call it the actor who used to play him at screen is a lot more punchable i think like from a face standpoint like he does look Kind of douchier than. Uh, oh, yeah. New one, you know? well, that's what I'm
1: saying. Like, I was yeah. trying to overlay his douchey face <laughs> <laughs> over Michelle Kussman's, like, really charming Dutch beardy face. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. He's just like a
0: cheerful, like, jolly guy, this new yeah. Dario, right? Uh, and old Dario, you know, to give you a sense of how much of a douche he is, he was the uh, generic British bad guy in the uh, Deadpool, the new uh, Ryan Reynolds comic book movie. So, you mean
1: you mean Francis to steal a joke from one of our YouTube commenters right now?
0: That's right. He was Francis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, he was. So, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. So anyway,
1: how how dare you call him a generic British
0: villain? <laughs> <laughs> I think. No, just, I know that's
1: in the opening credits. Right? Yeah,
0: that's right. <laughs> so um, anyway.
1: This is our well, this is our Deadpool podcast, right?
0: Yeah, this is we're talking about Deadpool. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's talk more about the the Viastothrax stuff at the end of this episode, uh, this podcast episode, because that's kind of how the the ep- this you know episode of the show ends. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, what goes on at King's Landing uh, first before we get to that. Uh, and there is uh, a scene where Marjorie talks to High Sparrow, and uh, Jonathan Price gives this massive monologue about how he first found god and i thought he did a great job uh and marjorie is kind of like trying to i would say manipulate him into getting her way uh and uh he she gets to see loris and they talk to loris and loris is having like what appears to be a much worse time than marjorie wouldn't you say yeah. Do we do we know what's going on with him? Like, what are they doing to him that they're not doing to Marjorie? It's not Torch, clear to me.
1: Torture. Yeah. Uh, Marjorie's just watching centipedes, where his loris is getting actively tortured. Yeah. Something that that uh, one of our listeners pointed out to me on Twitter is that for all that they showed Ramsay, like the meticulous torture scenes of Ramsay and Theon. They are just sort of skipping past what the sparrows do to their prisoners. You know, you see Marjorie kind of moldering in there, but you're, and we saw Cersei get sort of, you know, I think water dumped on her and food slopped at her and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, we're, we're not really seeing what they're doing to Loris. So,
0: and what do you think about that? Like, do you think it's less effective because we don't see it? Because yeah, I, I remember complaining a lot about all the endless Theon torture in season, I want to say, three. Um, and then later on, like, oh, I can see why they did some of that stuff because it, it reveals to you, like, why uh, Theon might have been broken, you know? Uh, but do you think it's, like, less effective without seeing the Loras torture?
1: I think the... Um, I, I think in the show version, like, putting aside book version of Loras, the show version of Loras is largely um a tool to serve Marjorie's story, honestly. And usually that's like the female role. Yeah. Um, but in this case, I think Loris is here as just sort of um a weight uh or leverage against Marjorie. And so for him, it's not really about him. It's about her in, in the show version of the Terrell kids. So to see Loris at the same time Marjorie sees Loris uh, I think it was actually pretty effective, and uh, to see her horror because you know he's such a he was such a beautiful kid, and so to see her horror and upset uh, at, at that, I, I thought was really really effective. I really liked that scene between the two of them.
0: I think that's an interesting way to go about it. Uh, I do think that there is an optimal level of torture to show, you know, and maybe Theon. If we're Goldilocks, like Theon's is too much, and maybe the Loras thing is like not enough you know maybe you need to show like at least a little bit to, to understand exactly what he's going through but uh, you know the show's trying to do a specific thing and uh with the torture and uh, i'm not going to complain too much about that uh, so one thing that i thought was really interesting i, I think i read somewhere i don't remember if it was like slate or the new york times recapping this episode about how they basically thought the high sparrow's speech you know uh, and, and him talking about his come to jesus moment uh w- he's kind of full of shit like he's uh, he's deceiving himself when he thinks that he has cast off the uh, the temptations of the world because he's he's self mythologizing in that story itself. Uh, and I didn't know what you thought of that. Like, what did you think was a function of that that story?
1: I think it's a real question um, this season whether or not the High Sparrow believes what he's selling. Yeah, uh, we had this conversation around his his interaction with Tommen. And I, to be honest with you, I can't tell. Um, I'm always interested to talk to you, actually, after a High Sparrow scene because you have so much more of a religious background than I do. And so I'm always interested to see sort of what uh, your own upbringing, like what what you can bring that to bear on, on these kind of scenes. Yeah, I
0: mean, as as someone who was raised as an evangelical Christian, it it did strike me as... Mm-hmm. A fairly uh faithful recreation of what a uh you know born again testimony would be, you know is that this guy like, hey, I did all this crazy stuff, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and then I realized, hey, uh, I don't need any of this stuff or all this stuff is just you know stuff from the world, and so I-, I was quite surprised to see someone call him out on his bullshit, given that from my perspective, it felt like a very sincere speech now uh now the thing is he might actually believe it but it is in fact still uh kind of uh, you know a whole hunk of hooey because uh there are a lot of contradictions in religion and in those kinds of religious stories because there is a bit of self-mythologizing there there is a little bit of self-aggrandizement even as you are saying you're getting rid of your own self-aggrandizement you know what i'm saying like Inherent, there are some kind of like inherent contradictions. I feel that maybe uh, is what the show is trying to bring to light. But uh, but I think like my personal opinion is that he believes it. Uh, if that makes any sense, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, anyway,
1: there are some theories that that the Sparrow is like manipulating Tommen. I don't know. Once again, this is like uh, crackpot conspiracy theories or whatever that. That he fed the information about Marjorie to Tommen. Tommen told Cersei. Cersei's making her big move, but if the High Sparrow did that intentionally, like, is he ready for this big move that Cersei and Olena and Kevin and Jamie are planning? You know,
0: right. And I think the question is: there's this game of telephone that is played, right? Like, Tommen and Cersei have a conversation last week, but we don't see Tommen say exactly what he told the High Sparrow. I'm sorry. It's. I think it's this week actually, right? Where they have that conversation, and uh, and then Cersei tells uh, Olenna like, "Hey, they're gonna make Marjorie do the walk of shame," and uh, Olenna says like, "That cannot be allowed to happen." Uh, and my, you know, one of my questions is like, did Tommen actually tell Cersei that? Did Cersei make that up? Is she using this situation to her advantage? Do you have any opinion on this?
1: She using this situation to her advantage, yes. That's always the answer with Cersei, sure. right?
0: No, fair enough. Fair enough. Is she using it to her advantage like uh under false pretenses? How about that?
1: Yeah, well, when she any concern that she's showing for Marjorie is false. Um she's using she wants to take the high sparrow down, and if she can leverage Elena's affection for Marjorie and Loris and Kevin's affection for Lancel to try to Marshal the Tyrrell forces and knock the high sparrow down, she will. Like, that's what she wants. And so she's saying, Hey, something, this awful thing's going to happen to Marjorie if we don't move quickly. Or, and Kevin, you don't want to get in the way because your son Lancel is under the thumb of the sparrow. Don't you want him back? I'm sure Lancel could grow his hair back out over that terrible. Carving that they put in his forehead—it'll <laughs> be fine. He, he just
0: needs some bangs, I think. Is oh yes, is yes,
1: a sassy side bang situation should clear it right up. So yeah, uh,
0: yeah. So I, I guess my question is: Is Cersei lying about you know what the High Sparrow plans on doing, or does it even matter? And I think what you're saying is, hey, like either way, she's still using the situation pretty expertly. Uh, to her advantage, so.
1: Well, you know, I don't. I'm, I hesitate to say pretty expertly because Cersei's plans tend to blow up in her face. So <laughs> we'll see. But uh, I, I feel like Tommen told her what Marjorie was playing that that the walk of a was coming from Marjorie. I feel like we saw that. I'd have to rewatch the scene. You know, I kind of zone out when Tommen's talking sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I do not remember that being on screen. So, uh, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe listeners in the chat room can tell us if uh, we saw that on screen or not, whether Tommen uh, told Cersei that Marjorie was going to do the Walk of Shame. I don't think so, but uh, let us know, and we'll come back to that at the end of the episode. Uh, anyway, so how long do you think it's going to take for the Terrell army to get to King's Landing?
1: I mean, if they take. Littlefinger's mockingbird, uh, <laughs> Airways—they'll be there in no time. I don't know. Um, I'd say we see them in the next two
0: episodes. Next two episodes, yeah, I think that's about right. And in terms of the plan blowing up in her face, I think uh, how that's going to happen most likely is you now have a Tyrell army in King's Landing, you know, and that is also not what she wants, right? Because she doesn't want the Tyrells to take control. Uh so
1: well so that would be Cersei repeating her mistake from last season right leveraging a big force uh, right. to, you know to get what she wants but maybe not thinking two steps ahead of like oh crap now there's going to be a huge Tyrell army but maybe they'll be grateful enough you know for her seeming to help with Marjorie I don't know to be yeah.
0: fair I think you know she's probably operating on blind rage and vengeance at this point uh and <laughs> and that's that's understandable yeah uh, so a lot of people in the chat room, by the way, are confirming that he did not tell her uh, on screen. Tommen did not tell her on screen, but that it is implied that that's what he, he's about to say before they cut away. And my question is, like, you know, there's all these, like, uh, cutaways before important information is transacted. Uh, you mentioned the Varus and, you know, that widow earlier. And it's like, well, did Tom, what did Tommen really say to her? Or is she making this all up? Who knows? Uh, I don't know. Uh,
1: We'll find out next week on Game
0: of <laughs> Or maybe we'll never find out. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, Cersei's operating under under blind vengeance, and and I think that's completely understandable. And kind of one of my favorite moments from this episode was when Lady Olena says, uh, like, that cannot be allowed to happen. As though, like, <laughs> that, like the implication is that was the worst thing ever, uh, and we all saw it happen, and, you know, we never wanted it to happen. Like, it wasn't you know really a a slam against cersei but i felt like there was kind of a th- third degree remove slam against cersei for that oh
1: sure she's like well it's fine enough for you but not a Tyrell. yeah exactly oh, no. like
0: it's yeah. cool if you go through it but not for us that's not that's not our kind of thing so uh all right so i think that's every single plotline other than what happens at oh wait brief scene with theon sailing home to pike uh, they meet with she meets with Yara, and then you know he kind of apologizes, breaks down. Uh, she tells him to stop crying. He says, "I think you should rule the Iron Islands." Uh, I thought that was kind of a bit rushed, like that the him like deciding that, "Hey, I'm going to support you for to rule the Iron Islands." But um, you know, it's again these are I'm, I've been picking all these like very minor nits. I don't actually think they're an, they're a major problem. But did that bother you at all, John, Or did you think that was good characterization?
1: And no, I know. I was glad. I was glad that Yara was like, buck up Theon. I think that's been sort of consistent with the Greyjoys and what they do. Uh, and Theon has been sniveling for, understandably, for a while now. I would like to see him start being able to look people in the eye. I mean, I'm not trying to be insensitive to his PTSD, but, you know, uh, uh, we start with a bath and some new clothes. One of our listeners just asked, how long has Theon been wearing those clothes? <laughs> and, and like I don't, I you know, I would like someone to tally who wore the same costume longer, Alfie Allen or Maisie Williams, because she had that, um, you know, she had her own set of rags. So uh, yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think Alfie might have her beat. It's possible, but yeah, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm hoping the next time we see him, he'll be looking more like a prince of the Iron Islands with a shaven haircut. Two bits.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. uh, All the sibling stuff in this episode I thought was pretty good overall. Uh, It was
1: mostly sisters telling their brothers to get their shit together.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It is true. It is true. Just like in real life. Uh, Again, everything I thought was good is just the – I guess this idea of him saying like you should rule the Iron Islands. I just don't feel like I have enough uh, understanding uh, of the emotional stakes there for why he might say that.
1: Um, Well, I think he certainly doesn't want it. And I think that was very – what he really needed to do was establish to her that he was not a threat, that he was not coming there to challenge her rule.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, but, that makes a lot of sense. You know,
1: but to sort of be like, no, I endorse you. You have my endorsement. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. Makes sense. Uh, all right. Thanks for explaining that, Joanna. Uh So two more scenes. One of them is uh, Ramsey killing Asha. Yeah. And it's kind of sad because – Uh, You kind of – there's kind of a a brief moment when you question whether Asha is actually still loyal to the Starks because she's kind of describing how uh, she didn't feel she was treated well. Then she starts –
1: You'd never doubted Asha, right?
0: I I doubted her for maybe like a a tenth of a second. And then uh, when she – there's these like close-ups of the knife that's right by Ramsay. Uh, And Ramsay, man, he has it all under control. Like even when someone's reaching down his pants – his first thought is, "Is this person going to kill me somehow?" Uh, and so he gets to jump on her and stabs her in the throat before she can do anything. Uh, and I
1: think his plan was to always kill her mm-hmm. uh, because he had the information that you know she was, no matter what, she was going to be working to try to free Rickon at, at any given moment. And she'd done it successfully before to the Greyjoys, so and in that same way, like she used, she used her sexual wiles. To, uh to get the boys out of there so um not necessarily that he saw her reaching for the dagger not that she was being subtle at all but I think he always he had that second dagger ready because he always planned to kill her uh, as far as Ramsey victims go this was uh you know kind of swift and merciful he, yeah. he he tends to like to torture so I'm glad um usha was not subjected to that I will miss her yeah and yeah. A lot of a lot of people were upset that Natalia Tania was brought back. The actress was brought back after you know a couple seasons off.
0: Yeah, just to for, be killed again for
1: basically like a scene and a half. But yeah. um, I mean, she's far more recognizable than Art Parkinson, so I think it helped uh, sell the whole Rickens back kind of thing.
0: Yeah, we uh, haven't even seen Rick in this episode, so yeah. who knows what's going on with him? Let's talk about the last scene of the episode. A uh, bunch of machinations going on uh, uh, via Stothrak about, you know, uh, Jora and Dario sneaking in. And there's a fairly amusing scene where they kill this dude, but they have to make it look like a uh, a head caving in via rock rather than using a dagger because weapons aren't allowed. And if they found the weapons or they knew someone had weapons, then everyone would go nuts. Uh, and then they find Danny, and Danny's like, you know, you guys are going to help me. Uh, Do this thing, and the help that they provide theoretically is killing the guards, barring the door, preventing people from getting out of uh, this sacred temple. And yeah, there's a very tense scene, some amazing framings uh, from a cinematography perspective, where you have these like 15 calls surrounding Danny, and you know this she's in the foreground, and they're in the background, and they're kind of like it's like her against all these people. I thought they just the, the the composition was amazing. And uh, then she just uh, kills all these dudes by knocking over these torches, burning the place down with all of them in it, uh, and emerging from the fire unscathed. Uh, and apparently Dothraki just like, emer- like they like worshipping things that emerge out of fires unscathed. That appears to be their uh, MO, because they did it once with Danny in season one, and it looks like they're doing it again only in far greater numbers this time. Uh, immediately after this episode aired, I think you published a piece at VanityFair.com, Joanna, uh, in, asking the question, like, were the last four years of Danny's storyline a complete waste of time? Because this is a, the exact same you know beat mm. that happens in season yeah. one, or very similar beat very that similar. happens in season one, uh, except instead of dragons and a uh, pyre fire, it's a uh, burning temple and no dragons. Uh, but it's Danny kind of demonstrating that she can't be burned; fire cannot burn a dragon. Coming out, impressing all these people. So, yeah, do you want to uh, talk about uh, what your conclusions were in that piece?
1: Well, a couple things. First of all, it's an interesting. I mean, we're still going to talk about the books on this show, but uh, you know, George R. R. Martin has said that Targaryens are not immune to fire. In his world, in the book world, so I'm curious that that like Daenerys emerging from the fire in season one or in the first book was a combination of blood magic and the dragon's awakening and all sort of stuff. It wasn't just that like she can't be burnt. Uh, the show clearly has decided differently that Daenerys can't be burnt. Yeah, and- like they
0: explicitly show her. Grabbing onto these the
1: brazier, yeah, yeah,
0: and like it not even feeling any pain from it, yeah,
1: right. And we've seen Daenerys like mess around with hot things before, but like, um, and that's fine. I mean, the, the show is like, no, these are our rules for <laughs> throw out your your rules, these are our rules. Uh, George R. R. Martin's uh, word no longer matters in this instance. Uh, Daenerys, something, but but if you want to go back to George R. R. Martin. He originally, for his books, had planned a trilogy, not seven books. And he also, in his original outline, like what happens is Daenerys, like her husband dies, Khal Drogo dies, she finds some dragons, she gets Dothraki followers, none of the Slaver's Bay Marine, Yunkai, Astapor, Karth stuff happens. This is all stuff that George added to sort of flesh out uh, his story. And so, it might be too early to tell if the last four seasons with Daenerys and Marine are a waste of time, or or in Slaver's Bay is a waste of time, because it'll depend how it all shakes out in Marine. But if it all shakes out in Marine that Daenerys goes back, scoops up Tyrion and Missandei and Grey Worm and her other two dragons, and heads to Westeros with the Dothraki followers, which is what a lot of people assume will happen, then. What what did we watch for four
0: seasons? Right? <laughs> like what was the point of all that? If
1: she hits the reset button on that, now some people say that her time in Marine taught her what not to do <laughs> when she gets to Westeros, and maybe that's true. I just don't. I she learned some
0: valuable political lessons.
1: I just feel yeah. like like first of all, well, this the the part of my article that I thought would interest you the most, Dave, is the part where like where are all her Unsullied? If she started with 8,000 or had 8,000 in season four. Why does it feel like she only has like a 100 now?
0: <laughs> uh, like, right. in
1: terms of who, what they show on the show.
0: Well, a bunch of them did get killed off last season, right?
1: A bunch of them, but like 7,900? Like, 7, majority,
0: yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like how know? many exactly, yeah. Yeah,
1: she lost all her Dothraki from, from season one. Um, the second sons, which are Dario's men, like we never see them anymore. You know, and most of our Unsullied team gone. So it just really feels like they're just hitting the reset button and it's like, okay, back to season one, this time with more Dothraki.
0: Well, also, um, yeah, the question is know. like, how are they going to get the Dothraki over the ocean? Because apparently Dothraki don't like water, right?
1: Yes.
0: So, yeah. So uh, the I'm, que- not,
1: I'm not very concerned about that.
0: Okay. So you're you, they're going to figure out a way to make them not seasick, you're saying? Um, well, I mean,
1: they were gonna, um, you know, Khal Drogo was going to take his men over to Westeros in season one. Um, like, that was his plan when he found out about the assassination attempt on Daenerys. He was so mad that he like gave that whole big speech of like, Bob. I think he said he was going to yeah. rape the world, I think. Yeah. Um, but basically... And he look like, how well
0: that turned out. He
1: was like, I'm ready to get on those ships. I'm ready. Give me the <laughs> Dramamine and <laughs> let's go to Westeros. So, you know, those Dothraki. will get on some ships. It'll be fine. Uh, but but yeah. But, it, the,
0: it, but, but the point being like, why couldn't she just have taken the Unsullied and the dragons and gone to to Westeros, skipping over all the marine and Carth stuff, right? Right, right. Uh, or not the Carth stuff. Actually, yeah, the Karth stuff, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you wouldn't want to skip over the, was it uh, Yunkai where she got the Unsullied? Astapor. Astapor, sorry. Yeah, you wouldn't want to skip over that. But you could skip over theoretically every other element of it. If this is in fact leading towards Well, it depends
1: the same how point. many Unsullied she takes with her to Westeros. Like she doesn't take any Unsullied. If Grey Worm <laughs> is the only Unsullied that that goes to Westeros, like why? Why do we do any of this?
0: Well, cuz she, uh, you know, and, maybe and, she freed and. the Unsullied, right? So maybe they're all like, "Hey, we we don't want to fight this battle. We're going to peace out." But the, Dothra- the Dothraki still worship you, so they're going to they're going to fight that battle for you. Maybe. I'm I'm grasping at straws here, Joanna. I'm trying I mean, to. What do
1: you think? I like. I thought it was a very impressive sequence, and if you watch the behind the scenes, um, uh, video that I mentioned earlier, like they they go into how they pulled it all off, and and technically and visually, it's very beautiful. There was a little too much CG for me right at the end, but like it, it was very impressive. But it does to me just feel like. Okay, this is what George R. R. Martin always wanted to do from the beginning, and he stretched it. And we've been dealing with all this Marine stuff for no good reason, you know?
0: Right. Like, it's kind of Danny just spinning her wheels a little bit. Right, you know. right. Uh, yeah, I think that there's a significant risk of that. And, you know, Jenna, this is probably the second time in this season where. There's been this major development, and all I see on my Facebook and Twitter timeline is, OMG, this is amazing. I love this show. Game of Thrones is awesome, right? Where it's like, Danny's being such a badass, and uh, Jon Snow's alive. Amazing. Uh, and, you know, where our reaction has been, uh, eh. you know, because, <laughs> because I feel like uh, we hold the show to an even higher standard. You know, we, like, we want the show to not just show us. Events that we want to have happen, uh, but to a set them up well, and b surprise us, you know, from uh, from time to time. And- well,
1: I I think that it's okay to be excited by like the big spectacle moments. Um, and I I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that those people, uh, those people, I, I I don't think necessarily <laughs> fair to say that those people are are holding. The show to a lower standard it's just maybe they're looking for something different in the show like some people do just like watching um or, or their favorite part about game of thrones right are the big sk- spectacle moments uh that's never been my favorite part of game of thrones we can go all the way back to season four and me like not liking the battle at castle black and i'm like uh yawn giants and mammoths and like a big Anchor in the wall. I don't care, or the scythe, or whatever. I don't care because spectacle has never been that interesting to me. But it is interesting to plenty of people, and so uh, you know, I think that's fine. But I, I think, uh, you know, for me, this does feel just like, and and that's a that's a George R. R. Martin flaw. That's not a show flaw. That's a George R. R. Martin flaw. But one thing that's really interesting to me in this whole like off book season is um, I'm so interested to see how George R. R. Martin's going to do this story. <laughs> if, <laughs> like, if, if Daenerys is not immune to fire in his version, how does she get away from <laughs> the Dothraki? I'm curious. And that's exactly what George R. R. Martin wants me. He wants me buying his book. So he's already got me. I'm, I'm there. So, yeah.
0: I mean, my guess is that the dragons who are now unchained escape, find their mother, fly all the way down there, and uh, they pull a real season one, you know, rehash with uh, the dragons, like, stooping down and, like, destroying everyone.
1: Yeah, I'm just curious why Weiss and Benioff wouldn't do that. Like, if it's if it's dragons in the books, if it is, right. you know, their whole thing in the post-episode interview was, like, it's significant that it's her doing it for herself this time, not using her dragons. But it it seems kind of a crazy bold choice to make. To be like, oh, this big, huge dragon set piece that Martin has planned, we're just going to do it with her tipping over a brazier instead. Um,
0: but but maybe maybe it was a financial necessity. Like, we, maybe we yeah. just we don't know. Like, maybe Wait. they they're just like they have a budget for this season. They want to use all the millions of dollars on episode nine, and they're just like we can't afford a dragon in se- episode four. You know, and maybe that was the calculation. We'll never know. Most likely. Not until years from now when they write the tell all.
1: When they write the book, yeah. yeah. I mean that is that is a consideration. Someone pointed out that if they plan to do it at night, you can't really do a CG Dragon at night. A black CG Dragon at night. <laughs> they've done they've done Drogon at like dusk yeah. before, but it would be hard well, to do. Well they did one in night.
0: the moonlight, I think. I think we've seen one of the dragons in the moonlight as well. Uh, I will say this though, really the Dothraki are an incredibly primitive society, Jana, because Uh, I I don't think they need to have buildings, like, up to code. But they could at least, like, put some basic thought into whether to position these gigantic torches full of flaming oil inside this incredibly dry grass hut. You know what I mean? Come on, guys. Come on.
1: I really don't know anything about... uh, Listen, I'm not a fire marshal. (laughs) But I was... was Kind of intrigued by the way that like flaming oil hit the dust and then like caught on the dust. Uh, anyway, that's nitpicking, that's like Dave Chen level nitpicking, so I There's, don't want to do it. But
0: here's another nitpick for you. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're inside what appears to be a fairly shoddily constructed hut. Couldn't these incredibly strong, brawny men figure out a way to break out of it somehow? Uh, in than the beh-
1: can- in the behind the scenes footage, they say that Danny made like a fire line so that they couldn't get to her. Mm. But I I really was surprised <laughs> that not one of them tried to punch her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like no one tried to punch her not once, or as you say, like a Kool Aid man their way through the wall uh, or something. You know, yeah, they just exactly. tried that one door. That just was barred. something like
0: something other than dying. You know mm. what I mean? Something something else. Anyway. Uh, I, I am glad I picked this nit though, because it did lead to one of the greatest tweets of all time, not by me. Uh, I tweeted last night: new startup idea, Dothraki Building Code Creation LLC, uh, which I thought was a, an okay to decent tweet. And then uh, user SwedgeLand on Twitter responded, "It's to be expected with no more Asha," which I thought was an amazing uh, one of the, one of the best tweets I've ever read in my whole life. So, bravo, SwedgeLand. That's that's an awesome tweet. Um, and OSHA for those who don't know who don't live in the US uh stands for Occupational Safety and uh, Health Administration. So it's kind of the governing body that uh oversees workplace safety.
1: You just tried to describe like a really visual word like wordplay. I tried.
0: I tried. <laughs> I tried. It's like it's like you know a friend trying to describe like a comic to you yeah. or uh, or tell you about a dream, you know? It's yeah. It's usually of limited success at best. So, (laughs) All right. Overall thoughts on the episode,
1: Jonah? Um, God, the Stark reunion, freaking great. All the Sansa stuff continues to really, really work for me. Um, I'm sorry I wasn't as excited about Daenerys as other people were. uh, But I am intrigued to see how that all ties up. I mean, I think my biggest problem with the Daenerys stuff is that now they've roped Tyrion into it. And so I have to watch Tyrion be not peak Tyrion uh, as a result of this goddamn marine plot. Uh, but yeah, other other great stuff in this episode. I'm I am cautiously very optimistic about what's going to happen with Theon and Yara. I think there's real potential for the Greyjoy stuff to be good this season. So there you go.
0: Uh, Yeah, I thought the sibling stuff was great. Uh, By the way, someone in the chat room points out that both the uh, character and the administration should be pronounced Osha. My bad. Uh, But uh, anyway, wanted to correct that. But overall, I kind of like this episode. Uh, Like you said, that moment between John and Sansa kind of made it worth the price of admission. Uh, And uh, I really like the Cersei, you know, uh, positioning, like political positioning going on. Uh, I think that's going to lead to some pretty interesting stuff. The Daenerys stuff at the end, uh, the imagery was amazing. And so just from a pure spectacle standpoint, I was impressed. But where is it all going to lead? Does it mean that Daenerys' plotline has meaning for the last few years? A lot of mysteries, a lot of unanswered questions, and we'll see what happens. Perhaps the biggest disappointment, Joanna, is we didn't get to see what's in the tower. You think we're going to find out next week? Uh, (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you know? Did they show it on the next time on preview, or did they? I, guess
1: I thought. Know. I thought we do not talk about we the next not, time on preview on on it. a cast of kings. That's
0: correct. That's correct. You're
1: like I will say, Dave. You are flirting with spoiler disaster. This I. Season.
0: I am. <laughs> I actually. I actually went back and watched the next time on preview for, for like the one describing this week's episode. Yeah. And uh, man, did it give away a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You know. So I'm really glad we don't talk about those here. Anyway, uh, in the meantime, uh, between now and next week, where can we find more of your work on the internet, Joan Robinson?
1: Uh, you can find me on VanityFair.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote
0: this. Find all my stuff at DaveChen.me. And thanks for listening to A Cast of Kings. We'll see you guys next week.